0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. This chapter 4, verses 1
1: through 17. So if you do have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, if you didn't bring a uh, Bible with you, but you'd like a hard copy of the text, you can find a Bible under a seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible at home, feel free to take that one home with you as a gift from us. So, this morning, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. So, once you get there, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, "Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite,
0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you all. So glad that you're here and that you came here on a Super Bowl Sunday, which is awesome. It's packed house, which is great. I told the 9 a.m. that they were out ahead of it by getting here at 9 so they could get to their festivities. But I'm glad that you're here. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We got a great morning this morning. We're going to have a baby dedication, which we love And uh, it's a really special one. And we're also going to be installing one of our pastors this morning. So stoked about this morning. But first, we're going to continue our work through the book of Exodus. Now, as Lauren was walking through that scripture, most likely uh, you realize this has got to be a story within a story, right? It kind of picks up in the middle um, of a conversation that Moses is having with God. And it is that. This is a story within a story within a story. Um, God is met Moses in the burning bush that is on fire but not consumed. Chapter 3, God reveals to Moses his name, tells him that he is the I Am, the self-existent one. He does this to distinguish himself over and against the Egyptian gods that Moses had been trained in. And then in chapter 4, we're going to have this conversing between Moses and God, and particularly we see the objections that Moses has to the commands of God that he calls him to go and basically stand against the Pharaoh And Moses has some objections in that. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. But before we do, what I'd love to do is pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. And so if you'll bow your heads, let me pray for us. Father, your word is timeless and true. Your word gives us what we desperately need when we don't even know what we want. We thank you now that we get to come humbly submitting to your word to find not just wisdom about life, but to find the very truth and life itself. And so we do ask, Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts? Would you open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we may hear from you? And in so doing, my God, that as your word lands on our hearts, that it might produce a 30, a 60, a hundredfold harvest harvest that it might produce fruit in our lives for our good and for your glory. And we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's pick up where we left off. I'm going to start in verse number one, and I just want to kind of read this, and then then we'll talk a little bit, and then I'll try to finish up the first 17 verses. So remember, God has commanded Moses now, your call, now that you know who I am and I've revealed myself to you, is you're going to go to the Pharaoh, and you're going to command him, the Lord saith unto thee, let my people go out of here. And, and Israel uh, needs to know that I am the Lord and that I'm bringing them up out of this land. Here's Moses' response. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear unto you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground. And it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. The Lord said that they may know and believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared unto you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe the first sign, or they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, then may they believe in the latter sign. And if they will not believe in even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, before we judge Moses too harshly, what we're going to get into here is a little bit where Moses can be perceived as a little bit smarmy, to say the least. God's going to get angry with him. But before we judge him too harshly, let's remember one fact. God is calling him now to face down the leader of the most powerful empire the world had ever seen up until this point. He is the king of a ruthlessly dark state and could kill Moses with impunity without even blinking. If Israel doesn't even believe Moses how can Moses expect that the Pharaoh is not just going to squash him out the moment he shows up to the palace? We must remember he fled Egypt in the first place because he had a threat from the Pharaoh. So it's not like, you know, I know it's, it's easy to read this and be like, Moses, why don't you just trust God? You know, it's, well, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. And maybe we would do well to have a little humility and think we might not be, you know, the warriors of faith that we think we would be if we were in his position. But nonetheless, we have to examine what's going wrong here. With Moses. And so I want to start with these three signs. What is God's response to his first objection? And his objection is clear. They're not going to believe me when I tell them this stuff. Particularly Israel, but also the Pharaoh, but they're not going to believe me. And so the first sign that God gives is that the staff becomes a serpent. The shepherd's staff is a common tool. It's used to corral the sheep and protect the sheep. So Of course, Moses has this staff because he's caring for his father-in-law's sheep, Jethro's sheep in the fields. You know, sometimes the stubborn sheep would, you know, need a reminder to obey their shepherd's voice. Sometimes the younger sheep might need need to be guided uh, more closely. Sometimes the wolves had to be fended off by the staff, but ultimately the staff was to protect the sheep and to lead the sheep. And rulers of the time, rulers of the day would have carried rods as a symbol of their authority. You know, you think back like, they even think about cartoons like Aladdin, for instance. You remember the creepy Jafar, you know, he, your daughter will marry me. You know, that's pretty much creepy. <laughs> and he's got like the snake staff. You guys remember this? Okay. This is because this is very common in the ancient cultures. The rulers, Pharaoh most likely would have had his staff. Uh, and Pharaoh also would have most likely, according to Egyptologists, had a turban with a serpent on his, uh, on his forehead. And so these rulers carried the rods. They wanted people to know they wielded these rods as a symbol that they would do two things. They would would punish anybody who tried to come in and and, uh, invade, and they would also punish anybody from within that would try to stand against their rule. And God gives Moses a real-life illustration of not just what's gone wrong with the world since Genesis 1, but in particular what's gone wrong in Egypt. The seat of authority, namely the Pharaoh's seat, has been perverted. The Pharaoh ruled like a serpent, not like a shepherd. The Pharaoh, more poignantly, is currently being controlled by the serpent from the garden, whether wittingly or unwittingly. And God wants to point this out. Now, I also want to show you that there's a little bit here of of God showing Moses what he's going to call him to do by his power. If you remember, uh, Moses actually fled the Pharaoh because he heard that the Pharaoh was going to kill him. So he fled the serpent into the desert. God says, grab your staff, throw it down on the ground, And as it becomes a serpent, what does it say? Moses runs away. And first of all, let's admit that that's also very relatable. Um, But he runs from the serpent, and what does God tell him to do? Go grab the serpent by the tail. That's the scariest part of this whole interaction, in my opinion. I mean, apart from talking to God in a bush. But go back and grab the serpent by the tail. And what does it do? Restores back to a staff. So God literally tells him, you go back and confront the serpent, and I'm going to restore to order for my people uh, that which has gone into disorder and perversion, okay by per, by turning the serpent back into a staff, God wants the Israelites to know, and of course the Pharaoh, but particularly he wants the Israelites to know that pharaoh's abuse of power will not go unpunished. Remember what the last two chapters have told us? God saw the plight of the Israelites, he heard their groaning, and he knew, so he decided to act. God wants the Israelites to know he and he is not mistaken he has not been hiding away he doesn't not know what's going on but he sees okay the hand that becomes leprous with our hands we work with our hands we embrace with our hands we eat we drink we enjoy life the hands are always used in the bible as a symbol of our way of life when we sin and we walk in wickedness the bible says that we ask god for clean hands and a pure heart God cleanses us and we bring our hands. The high priest would come into the tabernacle or the temple and wash what? Cleanse his hands first. It's why whenever Jesus' disciples were walking through the fields and eating the corn, the Pharisees had such a problem because of what? A, they're doing it on the Sabbath, but B, they have filthy hands. And this was to be symbolized as these are filthy people. The way of life under Pharaoh had become diseased. God wants to bring that message The Pharaoh's hands were unclean, ridden with death. Even though they were a prosperous empire, God was bringing a judgment down to say, you look prosperous from the outside, but your hands are filthy. God wanted the Israelites to know the plagues of ungodliness and idolatry that Pharaoh had led Egypt into and tried to coerce Israel into was going to be revisited on Pharaoh's own house if he refused to repent. Pharaoh had made the Israelites, the Bible says, a stench to the Egyptians. The Israelites were hated by the Egyptians because the Pharaoh made it so. But God wants Israel to know that he alone determines what is clean and unclean. There is no man that can determine clean and unclean. Only God can do that. And so he comes to tell the children of Israel, although the Pharaoh may have called you unclean, I will deem you clean. And then, of course, the main focus is that God alone, when he puts the hand back into the cloak and brings it out and it's clean, he wants Moses to know, it's me who cleans and heals. No one else. I'm the only one that can make man clean. And then the last sign that God tells Moses is that if they won't believe either, I want you to take water out of the Nile and I want you to pour it on the dry ground and it will become blood. The Nile River was the lifeblood of the Egyptian empire. There's no Nile River. There is no Egyptian empire. This is how they developed such a prosperous society, much commerce, everything comes through the Nile, all of their fields, their agriculture, all through the waters of the Nile. Without the Nile, the Egyptians would quickly be undone. And God reminds the Israelites, and he wants the Pharaoh to know that he is not unaware of Pharaoh's murderous edict to kill the children. Although the Nile had caused Egypt to flow with prosperity, God wants him to know, hey, the, the Nile doesn't just flow with prosperity. He says, Moses, I want you to grab a cup of water, and I want you to pour it out so that mo- the Pharaoh knows, and so that the children of Israel know, that I know the Nile flows with the blood of my children. That's what he wants him to say. In other words, this will not go unchallenged. You see, the Pharaoh is the man. He's the, he's the leader of the world. He, no one's going to challenge him, and God is wanting to tell him otherwise. God intends to tell him he will be challenged. Now, again, it's important to note that Moses' trepidation, even still, is not unfathomable. Like, if you flee to the desert and live there for 40 years, and then you come back and start telling people that you saw God in a bush, they might think you're crazy, right? I mean, you got to think about this. This, you know, Moses is like, you know, Doc coming back from Back to the Future with that hair. He's like, I talked to God. You know, it's like you might think he's a little nutty. But there's a second piece to this, which I think we should consider, which is this. If you've never thought about just how undeserving you are to be the carrier of God's message, I dare say, maybe we haven't considered it enough. It's madness that we would be considered the carriers of God's message. Why do I say that? Well, it's not just that we're too weak and feeble to confront the evil that's without us, because there's plenty of evil without us. And when you start thinking about the evil in our world, it's like, well, I'm not the guy or the gal. But number two, when you start considering the evil within, you think, well, what business do I have saying much of anything? If you've never had that moment, I would encourage it. It really helps. I mean, it it hurts before it helps, but it helps later, which is, do I have any business saying anything about anything? And that's exactly what Moses is going through here. Lord, I am not the guy to bring this message. I am just a shepherd in the desert. I don't come from the right family. I'm not wealthy, I'm not popular, I'm not powerful. And there's two things we need to remember that God wants Moses to remember, which is, number one, the gospel is a message that confounds the powerful because God reveals his power to the lowly of heart, not the prideful, and through the lowly of heart. You see, sometimes we mistake it and we think that God might choose someone like Moses because like, he doesn't have a very broad Like he didn't have a zip recruiter to get a good field, you know? It's like, well, Moses, I guess I can deal with you. It's like, no, he meticulously likes using guys like Moses because then he gets the glory when the weak and the feeble are the ones through whom he takes down the most mighty. This is exactly God's way. It's not incidental. It's not accidental. It's primary Jesus being from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, are important details, not just because of prophecy, but because of what they communicate. It's the lowly man that everybody forgot, that no one recognized. Or as Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Well, just the Lord of all, you know. Number two, God is the one. Now, listen to me on this. God's the one who draws and prepares the hearts of the audience to hear. We are just called to bring the message. Another way to put that would be this. God's in the business of saving. We're just simply in the business of faithful obedience. That's it. God says, Moses, bring my message. And then he gives him all these signs. He says, I'll do the heavy lifting. Another way to put this might be, God's the main act. We're like the stagehand that just hands him the guitar and hopes it's tuned, you know? That's our role, just just, just. Bring me the mic, Moses, and I'll do this. Just stand up to Pharaoh, and I'll make the the Nile turn to blood. Just go to Pharaoh, and in a moment, he's going to say, and I'll put the very words in your mouth. Just go. And we would do well to be reminded of this. You see, we're just God's messengers. God, however, is the author of life itself. Okay, so what's Moses' second objection? Let's Let's go read it. This starts in verse number 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I love this line because he is anticipating an objection, a response from God and trying to cut God off at the past. Here's what he says. God, I am not eloquent, not before you talked to me and met me and not after you met me and talked to me. Like in this conversation, I'm not eloquent. That's what he's saying. I love this. Something like this. God, I wasn't good at that before I was baptized. I'm not good at it now. I wasn't good at it before I went to home group. I'm worse at it now. I wasn't good at that before I got married. Now I'm married with kids and I'm worse at it. You got the wrong guy. See, he's anticipating that God might say, yes, you were bad at that, but you've met me. So he says, no, 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 no. I know I've met you. I'm stuttering as we speak. You gotta love this. Listen to the the response of the Lord. Maybe something for us to highlight in the Bible. And then the Lord said unto him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. says, Moses, who makes man's mouth? I'll put the very words I'm calling you to say in your mouth to speak them. This is, you know, I always go back to this, but this is the I'll tell you to fly and then I'll give you wings and then I'll bring the air and I'll bring good weather. God not just commands, but then he permits and empowers that which he commands. He's saying, I'm going to be with you, Moses. You're forgetting your your focus. Now, I want you to notice what Moses' focus was. First, it was on the audience. They won't believe me. Now, it's on himself. There's only one place he hasn't put his focus, and that is where God continues to try to drive his focus on God. So, Moses, the audience won't listen to me. Okay, I'll show you my power. I'm not eloquent. Yes, but I'll put the words in your mouth. Now, I want to read this last part here because, man, can you really understand Moses? If you've never been here before, then... I'm, I'm happy for you, but man, this is really relatable. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So even after all of that, right, he's, he's, he's experienced God. Anybody but me, don't make me be the one. Now, in my experience and just reading books of history, why choose Moses? I think maybe right here might be the reason, even though God's a little angry with him in a moment here because of this smarminess, the ones who don't really want the, the authority and the power are usually the ones you can trust with it. Let me give you a for instance. If you're like, hey, I need you to go to home group, Lord, and I need you to rebuke your sister in your home group. The one that says, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for this calling. I'm going. Usually not the one that you want doing the rebuking. You know what I mean? It's like I want, to, I want you to bring a really hard, tough message for people to hear. The one that's like, oh yeah, tough, tough message? I'm ready. My whole life's been made for this tough message. Those are usually the ones you can, what I'm saying is the one that you hand the sword to, and they say, oh man, the sword, and they're ready to cut. That's the one you don't want to hold the sword. But the one who says, send anyone but me. You know that that one is the one that's going to be cautious. That's the one that's going to be careful. That's the one who's really uninterested in showing up to the Pharaoh's palace in the first place. So when they get the authority, they're very unlikely to be wielding it inappropriately. In all of Moses' life, the The only thing that we see from him that's even aggressive or, well, I'll say unrighteously unhinged is he strikes the rock. Other than that, he never strikes the people. Now, mind you, he ends up having to slay some people because of the golden calf situation, but we'll get to that later. To face down earthly tyrants is a terrifying thing. That's what Moses is dealing with. But let's not forget what this symbol really is teaching us, what the Old Testament is really teaching us in the New, which is to face down the tyranny of sin that seeks to rule over us in our very souls is terrifying even more. And that's the call of God, isn't it? The call of God to Moses is to face down the Pharaoh. The call of God to the Christian is to face down your sin and wield the sword of God's word to slay it. And we might think, oh man, we got this. But if you really understood just how powerful the sin is, and not just that, but the Bible would say that there's this supernatural fallen angel that is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and that he's after you too, that's absolutely terrifying. But it's only half the story. You see, Moses in chapters three and four, his experience with God, they are patterned And ordered chronologically for a purpose. God first reveals himself to Moses and gives him his personal name. And then he calls him and commands him to do that which he called him to do. And it's not inverted. Why? Because Moses needed to know who God was in order to gain perspective on who he is that he might be obedient to God's call. See, apart from God being who he is, Moses has no business messing with any Pharaoh. He should stay in the desert. But if God is who he says he is, then he must obey. So it shouldn't be, I cannot do this, but God, you can do this, even though I can't. See, that's the key here. Now I want to read another story. David, King David gets this right in a way that Moses does not. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have your Bible, it's a right-hand turn. It'll also be uh, most likely put up behind me. But 1 Samuel 17, uh, starting in verse 41. As you guys are turning there, I'll catch you up. David has a showdown with a giant, okay? At this point, Saul is the king of Israel. He is a tall man, a strong man, a handsome man. He looks the part. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, you know that the kingdom gets ripped away from Saul and given to a man named David. It takes a very long time, roughly 14 years for that to come to pass, from the moment that David's anointed to the moment he takes the kingship. But nonetheless, he does become king, But here we're picking up the story where King Saul, along with all of Israel's armies, are facing down the Philistine armies. And the Philistine giant, Goliath, has stood out in the valley of decision and said, send out your greatest warrior and let him contend with me. And if I win, then we dominate your nation. But if you win, then you can dominate ours. And I guarantee you, you will not win. That's basically what the nine-foot giant says. Well, Israel kind of agrees. They're like, yeah, I don't think we can win. So they're just basically trying to bide their time. They're like, we don't know what to do. We don't want to fight this guy. David so happens to show up from guess what he was doing. He was tending his father's flock like Moses. And he shows up in order to bring some bread and cheese to his brothers. He says, hey, what's this? Uh, he says, what's this Philistine talking about? They tell him what happened. And David says, I'll fight him. Every person, his brothers are disgusted by him at this point. You know, he already thinks he's a king. And even Saul says, no, this this giant has been a warrior since his youth, and you are but a youth. The Bible records David as ruddy, which I want you to know, ruddy is, I'm not saying it's an indictment. I'm just saying it's not exactly like a qualification for warrior. He's a ruddy boy. David says, no, I will fight him. He tries to put on Saul's armor. It doesn't fit. It's too heavy. So he says, don't worry about this. I'll go out there without it. He has no shield, no armor, no, no uh, shield bearer before him, nothing. He ends up grabbing stones and pulls out his slingshot. And now he's going to go fight this giant. And I want to pick up the story there. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and he came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. So not only is Goliath nine feet, but he also has a shield bearer in front of him. Now, I just want to point out, every detail the Bible gives us up into this point just wants to underscore to the reader, David has no business in this fight. He is physically outmatched. Here we go. The Philistine said to David, verse 43, am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword, not with spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give me into your hand, into our hand. Now that's the kind of response you're looking for, right? Like David shows up and has, he should sound like Moses, he sounds you know, like Saul, right? Like Saul should sound like I'm a strong, but David doesn't look the part, has no weapons, has no business in the fight and says, not only are you going to lose, but I'm going to cut your head off and all the birds are going to feast on the flesh of your friends. If a teenager came up to you and said that at Chick-fil-A, how would you feel? Now, we obviously know the story is it happens exactly as David said it would. Our focus when God calls us to do a thing, even when we face insurmountable odds, is not to be on ourselves, but to be on the wisdom of God, the power of God, the ability of God. If God intends to put his name on the line, here's what you can rest assured, he will not lose. When God says it is for my name's sake that I'm going to do a thing, you can go ahead. It doesn't matter how you show up. If it's for his name's sake, he will win. The Bible says it like this, you and I, even when we're faithless, God remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He won't deny his own character. He says, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh. I'm going to bring you out. Why? So that the world may know, so that the earth may know, so that Pharaoh may know, I am the Lord and there is no other. Once God says this, friends, you can be certain. It doesn't matter what the odds look like, he will win. In fact, the worse the odds, the better off for you because he likes to do things like that for his glory. Now, I have to mention this before I get to my last point, just because I think it's a big part of this story in Exodus, and we don't have tons of time to jump into it, but I just wanted to mention something that I think is not incidental to the text. God's response to Moses here when he says this is very gracious. He says, okay, well, let's get your brother Aaron, and let's get him involved. Now, there's a lot to be said about that. Aaron becomes the high priest. He becomes an intermediary. That's why you see Moses. You tell Aaron what to say. Aaron, you tell the people. There's a lot in there. But at its most basic level and fundamental level, what's our takeaway? God in his mercy gives us brothers and sisters in the faith to strengthen our resolve and to stand beside us when adversity might overcome us. If you've ever wondered why the church is important, why community is important, it's because you and I sometimes can't stand and someone comes alongside and fortifies your strength, your weak need, and someone comes along and holds you up. Later in the desert, they're going to be in a fight with the Amalekites, and every time Moses raises his hands, the Israelites win, and every time he drops his hands, the Israelites lose. And he, he can't hold his arms up anymore because it's just so difficult and he's tired. And here comes Aaron, and here comes, uh, here comes uh, I believe it's Jethro, or one of the others comes alongside and holds his arms up. And this is what's happening here. He sends a Aaron. Okay, but there's a skill here that I think we need to talk about. And we got to do it quickly. The temptation here, every time God calls us to do something in the face of insurmountable odds, is to try and maybe think, I may need some worldly skills to accomplish this task. Like every time... Moses has to face down some insurmountable odds. The temptation is to either try to bail out on that or figure out if if Pharaoh's got his armies, maybe I need an army. If Pharaoh's got his chariots, maybe we need some chariots. What should we do? But instead, Moses is going to learn a skill. It's going to be a skill that's unlikely for him to learn. It's going to be a skill that you might think is unnecessary for you. He's going to learn the skill of faith. Trusting God is going to be the way that Moses succeeds. Moses has met time and time again with the Pharaoh denying him. And Moses will trust God and God will show his power. The, Egypt, the Egyptian armies will show up at the Red Sea and rather than fighting them with the Israelites, Moses will stand and trust God and God will defeat the armies of the Egyptians. It doesn't matter if Moses is facing down Pharaoh. Later, he's going to face down the grumbling Israelites. And even, even later, he's going to face down Miriam, his own sister who's trying to you know, form a coup against him. Each time, Moses' faith will protect him. And I want to say this, as we walk with Christ, you will inevitably be met with opposition and moments when it feels like you're going to give way. You're going to be crushed by the weight of the world. You're going to be destroyed by the attacks of the enemy. And in that moment, you're going to be tempted to believe a lie that the answer is to exercise some worldly skill to get yourself out of this predicament. I need to be a better speaker or orator so I can argue my case. I need to be a better fighter so I can punch back on these people who are doing this to me. I need to be a better investor, a better budgeter to hedge against the potential of poverty that's coming in to my life, the bad times that might come. I need to set the record straight, but these slanders are getting after my character. I need to go after them. I need to build a stronger posse because my relationships are starting to fray. It doesn't matter if we choose worldly weapons of warfare or if we even choose godly weapons of warfare. If we do either of those without faith, it means nothing. Our main focus is to be on God. Now, there's many ways in which we can grow in faith. You know, we can grow in faith in prayer We can grow in faith through our knowledge of the word and ingesting the word. You can grow in faith by exercising humility. Grow in faith by exercising confidence in the gospel. All of these things are true. But the main thing that I want to end with today is actually how the text ends, which we didn't read. And that's the very last two verses of chapter 4. Moses has been very terrified. He doesn't know how the children of Israel are going to respond. Listen to verse 30 and 31. It says, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads, and they worshiped. You see, one thing that Moses has been very worried about, ignoring the main thing, is how the audience might respond. He's worried about his ability to really carry the message, but one thing he hasn't considered is how is he receiving the word of God right now? You see what gets lost in us being worried about how we're carriers and ambassadors for the gospel is how are we receiving the very gospel for ourselves currently? Have we have we taken a drink from the well of living water before we worry about the details of how we're going to hand out cups have we taken the bread of life and eaten to our fill before we worry about how we're going to whether we're going to toast the bread or not you know are we receiving the good news and so i want us to land there this morning how will we receive the good news of the gospel because here is the heart of this text you see christ the good shepherd the greater shepherd than Moses, the rod of God in the right hand of the Father's side, the very righteousness of God was cast down to the earth and became a curse for us. The Bible says in Galatians 3, any man who is hung upon a tree is a curse and Christ became a curse for us. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The rod of God became a serpent so that you and I could could be made righteous. Christ, the perfectly holy, the perfectly clean, the only perfect, the man with perfectly clean hands bore our sicknesses, our afflictions, our diseases, our plagues for us. He became the leprous man on the cross for us. And finally, on the dry ground of Calvary, when a spear was thrust into the side of our Lord, water and blood hit the ground, the Bible says, and it was finished. Jesus fulfilled all that needed to be done. And in that moment, our taskmaster, Satan, was put on notice. He was the prince of the power of the air, and he had had his time, but now his days were numbered. Christ had redeemed his people. He had brought them out of the house of bondage, and now he was going to prepare a place for them. And now Satan had lost, and the name of God would be revered forever. And this is the news that Moses is bringing thousands of years before to the children of Israel without knowing its fulfillment would be in the greater Moses when he showed up thousands of years later. You see, Christ is the story. And the question is not about how we're going to carry it. The question is, first, how will we receive it? How will we receive the gospel? My final thought is this. You see, it's funny that the signs are given to Moses first for Israel, but those self-same signs are given to Pharaoh. God doesn't create new signs. You notice that? He gives the same signs to Israel as he gives to the Pharaoh. And for Israel, their hearts are moved. They bow their heads. They receive the word and they worship their God. But for Pharaoh, his heart is hardened. He will not worship God. And what this does is it lays out for us today the self-same invitation Or as the Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And the question we have to ask is, do we have ears to hear? Do we have hearts to receive? The gospel's extended to us now that we might be more like the children of Israel and receive and worship and not like Pharaoh and reject it. We need the good news. We need the good news. Let me pray for us. Father, may we be receptive now. You stand willing and ready to forgive. You stand ready and willing to empower us. And so would you now help us to hear? Give us ears. Give us tender hearts. Give us eyes to see. Holy Spirit, now we ask that as we take of the bread and of the wine, that we would be reminded of the cross, And just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness that might heal the children of Israel of their stings from the serpents, we now look to you, Jesus, who died and became a curse for us that we might be healed forevermore. And so as we sing, let it be true. As we pray, let us be earnest. But all in all, my Lord, we pray that we might live our lives in a way that please your heart, bring glory to your name. And bring us the joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.